0: I want to thank you that you are the awesome God and that even though we were stuck in the miry clay, you lifted us out and you birthed in us this testimony of your amazing grace that you would rescue one such as me. And Father, we are forever grateful that as our testimony speaks of this love revealed to us from heaven. That, God, we would, we would forever walk in that gratitude. And today as we, t- we speak about worship, that this, would, this worship would be an overflow of that gratitude for what you have accomplished for us and what you've done as a display throughout our lives walking with you of this amazing love. God, I pray, speak to our hearts Today, speak to our hearts right now as we search your scriptures, as we would allow your spirit to speak to our hearts. And I'm asking you, God, that the result of all of this is that we leave here changed because we have been in the presence of God and the spirit of God, I believe, would speak to our hearts and we will have responded. So spirit of God, as your church, give us ears to hear what you would say. Give us open hearts to apply it in Christ's name. Amen. Can I make a confession to you guys? How many of you have ever been thoroughly, you hear me emphasizing that word thoroughly, embarrassed? Raise your hand. Thoroughly embarrassed. Thank you. It's like everybody in the church. That happened to me yesterday. Here I was, okay, I am at a conference, um, Books and Beyond, Meredith and Kate spoke. Amazingly, I got the word back. Um, at their talk, uh, the Meredith's book table was set up, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I knew that I, I, I needed to spend some time in preparation for the sermon, and here I am, and if you can picture this, it's, it's a narrow hallway, a little long, I don't know, a, a dozen vendors, something like this, were set up to my right, and here I am, I've got this round table, probably two and a half feet in diameter, I'm sitting on a high, not in a high chair, on a chair that's high, let me word it that way. And I am just I'm just meditating on Revelation 4 and 5. And that is a, a scene that John gives us of this amazing worship in heaven as the elders, the 24 elders, fall on their faces, cast their crowns before the throne of God. And then the next scene we see this amazing lion who has overcome, the lion of Judah, who is then immediately pictured as the Lamb of God who was slain for us. And here I am, I'm just meditating on this. And, and I am overwhelmed. And I started crying in front of everybody. And there's probably, I don't know how many people, I want to say a hundred, I'm sure there weren't that many. And it's, I, I do one of these, oh Lord Jesus. You know, you you, you pierce the, the, <laughs> the eyeballs like this and uh, yes, deep meditation, and I'm covering up my tears. And I am just being overwhelmed in his presence. And I'm saying, uh-oh. That's When I start feeling the tears, I just say, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, God, help me not to be so thoroughly embarrassed in front of these people. And I'm about to say anon- another uh-oh here. But the truth is, worship is Is something that should truly do that in our spirit. There's something in our soul as we look. I heard some people were meditating on Psalm 63 this past week. Um, My soul thirsts for you, God. My body longs, even faints for you. What a picture of the soul of the human yearning for God and longing to be satisfied, and we discovered last week that that is the essence of worship. There is this connection as we are in in the presence of God, as he is tabernacled, dwelling upon, sitting on the praises of his people, and as we are before his face in his presence— we had this awesome opportunity to worship him. And, and the psalmist says, and my soul is satisfied in him. What is it about worship? it does this. It's it's meant to stoke the flames of passion for our God, for our Savior. And I emphasize Savior because that is the image that's conjured up in Revelation 5, the Lamb of God who is standing in the center of the throne. He alone was worthy to open the seals because he was chosen by God and he was sent by him and he was slain for us to purchase us. For him, that is Savior, Redeemer, the one who purchased us as his very special possession. What is this about worship? Now, last week we looked at a number of different things that it causes us to magnify God and demagnify, is that a word I can use here? Our problems. Make them seem so much smaller as we have God in full view. It stirs up humility. It reminds us of who God is and what he has done. And we touched on a number of different things. worship taps into that nature of our being that stokes those flames of passion for God. Now, sometimes because our hearts are filled with this passion for him, it prompts us to worship. And sometimes it's the other way around in which it is as we worship God, That it it impassions us. And so what I want to do is, last week we spoke on worship, this is part two, of this concept of worship, and I want to entitle it God's love language. How many of you have ever heard of the five love languages? Okay, very good. I can remember in the early part of our marriage, Meredith just had a a one-on-one with me, and just complete honesty, and she said these words that just floored me. She said, Michael, sometimes I don't feel loved by you. I'm not even going to ask for a, a raise of hands by us men, who, and our wives have expressed this, and, and we're trying to connect. I, I, I was confused, and the reason why I was confused is because I thought to myself, well, I, I don't get that. I tell you I love you, and I serve you. I look for every opportunity to serve you. And what she began to express to me is what has come to be known in our day as love languages. And she says, Michael, please understand that when you serve or when you are served, and she recognized this because when she served me, she could tell this did, it it, it made me feel loved. And so she knew that my love language was serving. I thought there was only one love language. Sir, you want me to love you? I will serve you. And so as I tried to serve her, it did not connect because that is not her love language. And so she just began to school me a little bit in what it meant to, or how I could do certain things or say certain things that would make her feel loved. Those are, there are actually five love languages. Don't ask me to repeat them. I can't remember all of them. I might if I took five minutes to remember them. But the truth is, I believe that God, God himself has a love language and that that love language his worship. Now, before I read from John 4, and I'm only going to camp out there for a brief moment in the beginning, I want to share this story with you. Last night, and I don't do this very much, but I, I was looking at some uh, music videos <clears throat> Because I had stum- I was on a Christian site, stumbled across this little girl who was singing, and apparently she ended up singing, I think, in like American Idol. Or, you know, there's like a gajillion similar type of TV shows out there. Uh, America's Got Talent. What are some of the others? Do you remember? There's a British one. What's it called? The Voice? Uh, anyways, here I was. And I, so I clicked on this one guy. And because the title, and as you hover over the title seemed rather cool. And I thought, well, I, I want to watch this. And so here's here's what happened. This 34-year-old guy comes out on stage, and you know what the audience is like. You can't see the back of the audience. It's huge. And he comes out on stage, and he's doing this. And he's just standing there, and his face is red. And you think that he is about to explode and run off stage from embarrassment. And And his microphone is shaking like this. And he is trying to talk to the judges. Thank you for having me come out here and... You are terrified for him. They pick up on this, right? And they begin to ask him questions to try and put him at ease. And, you know, how old are you? I'm 34. And they asked him another question and and another one. And before you know it, okay, the microphone's not shaking anymore. His voice is a little quivery. And then he says, or they ask, so why do you want, why did you choose this song? And he says, it's because my grandfather passed away two years ago. And I was allowed to sing this song at his funeral. And they said, really? Well, tell us about that time. What song did you sing? And help me out here, church. Love is a Rose. Is that the name of a song? Oh... When in the spring becomes a rose oh, Help me. Oh yeah, I'm really gonna sing, okay. Da 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 Oh come on, I can't remember the words, I'm not good with those. Does anybody even know what song I am trying to... Thank you, Mickey, Lana, and Laura. The others are clueless. You are embarrassing me. Okay, I embarrass myself. I'm not going to blame anybody. And so they say, okay, go ahead and sing. And the microphone starts shaking again. (laughs) And you feel so bad. And then the camera looks at the judges, and the judges are looking at each other what is about to happen? And the music starts playing and he begins to sing and your jaw drops. And they are amazed. This guy has a powerful, rich, baritone voice with such style and and he's expressive. He He morphs into a completely different person. And at the very end, when he is done, the audience stands to their feet and they erupt with applause and, and they're cheering. And the first words out of one of the judge's mouth is this. He says, how have you kept that talent hidden for 34 years? And as the man looks out, you begin to cry. At <laughs> I did, okay. <laughs> because he looks out and he starts bawling. And he's 34 years, he covers his face like this. And I guess he's embarrassed. He, he's, he has never sung in front of a group before. He said he had contemplated for five years to sing on this show. And every time he put together his submission, he ripped it up and threw it away. And his friend said, you know, you're just, when you get up there, you're going to be so embarrassed, you're not going to be able to do this. And you're going to embarrass yourself you don't want to do it. And finally he just said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And the audience erupts with applause and, and you are amazed at what this guy has done. Now, I am now going to take this story that I shared with you. I'm going to change two things about it. And I want you to see what our point is this morning. Instead of an audience of thousands that are standing to their feet in complete amazement and applause, I want you to imagine that there is an audience of but one. And this person is not standing to his feet, but he is seated on this majestic throne with a sea of glass gathered around him. And his heart is so filled with delight For what he just has heard, you by yourself, one voice singing and worshiping him and it has touched his heart because it's the love language of this God. And number two, it is not you standing on the stage. It is not you who is the focal point of this entertainment. It is that audience of God who is not just the audience He is the one on the stage, and he has so thoroughly captured your heart. And as you worship him, and as you sing to him with gratitude in your heart, his heart is so filled with delight, because you are speaking in his love. I believe that when we begin seeing worship as God's love language, we begin to understand the depth and the richness of this thing we call worship. My question then becomes, how do we we communicate this love in worship? How do we do this? I mean, most of us do not have this awesome voice that God just says, "All the melody just touches my heartstrings. No, we're a little bit noisy, we're off tune, we're off beat, we can't even clap on beat. And yet, can I say this, that God is thoroughly delighted and his heart has been stroked, as it were, as you worship him. John chapter 4. Here we see Jesus, and he is coming to a well in in Sychar, in this region called Samaria. This Samaritan woman who has had five husbands. The one living with her now is not even her husband, i.e., guy number six. And there is this sense, obviously of dissatisfaction in her heart. Jesus knows this. He doesn't have to inquire with question upon question as as I would have to, but he knows what's in her heart and he goes right to her heart. And he says here, excuse me, in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Church, say that with me. Living water. What? Living water. Okay, okay, so water on two legs. What is, she, what is this guy getting at? Living water. She's curious. She begins to ask questions, make statements, kind of like Peter, kind of when he's off in left field. What are you talking about, Jesus? <clears throat> And Jesus goes on in verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water, this, referring to the water in the well, this water, will be thirsty again. It was a very sacred well, by the way. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm going to pause here for a moment before I go on to the the next few verses, This living water is is obviously something that Jesus knows will satisfy this deepest longing in her heart. Her soul is not satisfied. Her soul is longing for something, and she's looking to the world to satisfy that thing in her heart, that yearning, that ache, even pain in her heart. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I am going to give you Living water. And and when you get this living water, it is going to well up within you. And it will produce eternal life. Now, most of us, when we think of eternal life, we think of heaven, right? That is not what John is referring to. I'm not going to say he's excluding that. Of course, he's including that. But when John uses this phrase, living, excuse me, eternal life, he means more than just heaven itself, John six forty seven. he who believes has, possesses right now eternal life. Eternal life is not just a quantity of days or it's not just a quantity of living. It is a quality because Jesus knows that this woman is dead in her transgressions and sins. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1. That according to Romans 6, she is a slave to sin. She is a sin addict. She is compelled by this very nature in her to sin. And she is constantly seeking to find her satisfaction in sin. And she never finds it. No, No one will ever find satisfaction in their sin. They're lost in their sin. And now when we drink of this living water, who is God himself, and we experience this relationship, we are then transferred from death into life. And as Jesus said earlier, the the previous chapter, we become born again, John three. We become born again. We experience this new life. And so this living water produces life in us, it ignites us. The dry wood is ignited and is consumed by the fire. And I'm going to say that that fire is something in your lives that God wants to ignite in us. And that can only happen get a load of this. You can only be ignited by that fire by having the living water, by tasting and drinking and being doused in and immersed that living water. I know that sounds paradoxical. That is the truth. And so <laughs> the Spirit of God is referred to both as a fire and this water, John 7, welling up within us like a river. And Jesus now brings us to verse 21, and he says, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans, and he, he cuts straight to the, to the quick of things, and he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. I think he's gracious there, but he doesn't mince his words. He shoots from the hip. You guys have missed it. They only believed in the Pentateuch, and they did not believe anything further. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that was it. The Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament and consequently most of the truth about God described in the Old Testament. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. And he continues on, yet a time is coming, and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I want you to underline those two phrases, in spirit and in truth. And I'm going to be very quick on this because it's going to lead us to where I want us to go in, back to Psalm 95. That's where I preached on last week. I want us to go back there. I told you I would do that last week, verses one through seven, and I want to do that in just a moment. In spirit, I want I want you to see something here. This is not In spirit and in truth is not completely disconnected with what he previously said. No, it is completely connected and he's drawing some conclusions because she was talking about worshiping on this mountain, you guys worship in Jerusalem and Jesus says that is no big deal. It doesn't matter where you worship because those who worship in spirit, that is in their heart, in this relationship with the Father because they have what? Drunken deeply of this living water and it has produced Life within them. It doesn't matter where you worship; it is in con- the place is inconsequential, because it is the heart of the worshipper that God is concerned about, not the heart that is in rebellion and say, "I'm just going to do my own thing," but the heart that is in communion and in this life-giving relationship with the Father. In truth, is I am. I will say it is. The object of our worship, that would be God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but by me, Jesus is the truth. It is who this God is. We worship in truth. We worship according to truth. So who this God is but it is more than this. Now, we know that Jesus means more than who we worship because even as in spirit goes back to neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the place of worship in truth goes back to what he said in the next verse. You worship what you do not know and we worship what you do know. If by in truth, now follow me here. If by in truth, Jesus simply meant the person of God then we would not see the word what what we know we would he would have used the personal pronoun who who we know but he doesn't now, i find that rather intriguing but because you expect this. We worship who we know, and you worship who you do not know. But his point is beyond that, and that's why I now need us to go to Psalm 95, because I'm going to say yes, spot on. In truth means who God is, what he has done, and being in awe of who he is and what he has accomplished for us. So turn with me to Psalm 95, but I'm suggesting to you it is more, because it's not Who we know, but what. So this concept of in truth is just broader than the who and the why we worship. Now, did you follow me there? There is another element I believe we will discover in Psalm 95. Now, I did not read the entire Psalm to you last week, or the entire section of verses one through seven. I will do that right now. And let's draw some conclusions. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. Come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song for. And I want you to place a box, if you will, or underline or highlight that word for, because this gives us the reason. He just said worship. Now he gives us the reason for the Lord is the great God the great king above all gods. All god's little g. Satan is the little g god of this age. You know that. He is the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Genesis chapter one, God as creator and king, and sovereign, all-powerful, the most amazing miracle in which through Christ he created all things through just the spoken word. Let it be. Psalm, excuse me, verse 6, come. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, Again, take verse seven. First word, for, at least in my translation, NIV, for. This is going to now give us again the reason because why, why do we worship him? Because this is the reason for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. What does that image right there in verse seven conjure up for you? Does it, does it not conjure up this great shepherd? this God who superintends the needs of the people, that he cares for them, and the psalmist is trying to get at the very heart of God, not just that he is this sovereign God who is so beyond us, but he is that intimate as Jesus did in John 10. He is the good shepherd that so cares for us, the the transcendent God of verses two. three, four, and five, and now we see what they, the theologians call the imminent or the, the, the very present God. He's intimate, and he knows our very needs, and he longs for this relationship with us. So he's all-powerful, but he is that good shepherd who is so concerned about every single need, and apparently, church, this is what should prompt us to worship him. Now, if all Jesus meant by in-truth I would suggest to you that the only verses that would be in Psalm 95 verses 1 through 7 would be verses 3, 4, and 5, and 7. But that's not the case, is it? Obviously, there is more to this psalm. We are asked to worship him not just because of who he is, as awesome as that is, but he actually, listen to this, he actually tells us the how. He, asks, he, he lays before us how he desires to be worshipped. And I am suggesting to you that love is, excuse me, that worship is the love language of God. And if I am to worship him, then he is going to want to tell me how I can do this because this is what he longs for. And we worship him in truth, not just because of who he is and what he has done, but we worship him in the how as well. We worship him in the how. Come, let us sing. Let us shout aloud. Give thanks. Bow down. Kneel. This what of worship that we saw in John 4, what we know, this what of worship, God's love language, does not merely concern the why, it concerns the how. Now let me ask you this, if I, when I married my wife, if the sum total of my expression of love to her was simply saying, I love you, and holding her hand, you would think that odd. A close friend of mine, and and many of you are, would eventually come up to me and and say, Mike, uh, can I just ask you, do you only love your wife by saying I love you and holding her hand? And I would say, yeah. And they were to say, well, Mike, there's a lot more ways that you can express your love to your wife, and I would guarantee you she would really appreciate that, like giving her flowers. If my wife were in the background, she'd be saying, "Amen, amen, flowers." He would say, yeah, "You can also put your arm around her. You can also kiss her." Hello. I didn't hear any amens. Wow. You you. There's there's more ways that you can express to her I that you're that you love her other than just words. And an occasional holding of the hands. Here is my question then in view and, and I would applaud you if you would be that friend and be gracious enough to speak into my life. However, here is my why in American church churches today are we so unidimensional in our worship of God? We sing and we have musical instruments, period. Nine, I would venture to say 90% of the churches, and this would be throughout church history. We sing and we play musical instruments, and some churches don't even play musical instruments. It's just a cappella. Now, I, I'm not opposed to worshiping an a cappella, but is that it? And that is why I chose this word unidimensional. We are so limited in how we are expressing our love, and truly, if worship is the love language of God, then God is asking, no, God is telling us here how he desires we worship him. It is not a choice that he leaves up to you. I want you to look in your bulletin for a moment. You see there, just open it up if you haven't already. Welcome to Powerline Community Church, celebration service, et cetera, et cetera. And we list almost a dozen ways that Scripture invites us to worship our God. It is by no means unidimensional. Let's look there. It it talks about singing. May I add to that saying? We see that in Revelation, by the way, saying, just speaking words of worship, not just singing. And I believe that the reason why God wants us to sing is because there is this element of confession of truth that he wants us to express our love to him in this way. Confessing these things. And I talked about confession. Confession has this means. Remember, I said in John, uh, excuse me, Romans 10, 8, 10, nine, it says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. This is a big deal. It, it really is. It is God, even to be saved, he is asking us to call upon the name of, there is something that needs to come out of our mouth. Many times that happens at water baptism, wonderful. It can happen anytime, but God asks us, don't just believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. That means words li- literally need to come out of your mouth. And then there's something about this confession of Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior, Redeemer. He is the one who parted the Red Sea and just confessing the acts of God and who he is, et cetera, et cetera. Singing causes us to confess and impact us in this way with truth. Musical instruments. I I know so little about the power of music. I, I think in psychology, as they are trying to discover how music impacts us. They're scratching the surface. Music is like the language of our soul. It, is, it, it opens us up. It's emotional. Yes, the, the very nature of art is from the heart of God. God is an artist. Amen, church? Is he not? He, he loves beauty. He loves to create things. This is the elements that drive worship, that drive music, I mean, and musical instruments, so I'm going to say that it is emotional, but it's it's more than that. It is the language of the soul, and, and we need to communicate with God in this, on, on this level as well. The next one is clapping, and I'm not referring to the scripture passages. You can do that yourself. You will find them both in the Old Testament and in the New. <clears throat> and so as we look at uh, clapping, there is a passage in Kings in which <laughs> the king just coronated, stands on this stage that they have built, and the people of Israel stand to their feet and applaud him. Why? Did he just sing Love is a Rose or whatever the name of that song is? Did he, did he just do a juggling act? I mean, were they entertained? No, that's not why they're clapping. It's to honor him who is now the coronated king, and he will lead them, and so they're clapping to honor him. And so for this reason, God challenges us to clap. And, and yes, we clap to the rhythm of music, whether we're on beat or not. We clap and, and, and we add to that from our, you know, our abilities to keep in rhythm. And, but clapping is more than this. Clapping is an offering of adoration to the king, our king, our heavenly king. The next one here, bowing. There is something about bowing in the presence of a king. We see it both in Old Testament and New. Before an honorary, we, we, we bow down. We bend the knee because we put our head lower than his. <clears throat> we, 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 are, we are humbling ourselves and seeking to lift him up, because typically such a person is seated on a throne or something similar, and we are bowing to honor him in this way. There is an expression of humility here in this idea of bowing. Shouting. Many people in our day feel extremely uncomfortable with shouting. Shouting is something that is exuberant. when, when God tells us to shout to him, and we do see that here in this passage, come let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud. There's no such thing as a soft shout. There's no such thing so it's almost redundant to say shout aloud, but you get the idea. The enemy is trying to portray this. This is exuberant. This is this is not just a quiet expression of our hearts. This is this is a celebration. And and tonight, when you go to the the Super Bowl party or watch it on your TV, um, when your team scores that sh- that touchdown and maybe even the winning touchdown, no, none of you will say. Golf clap, that, that, that was so exciting. My team won the Super Bowl. Woo, Now you're gonna say, yeah, all right. Go team, we won, woo. And you are excited, and there's celebration, and you're gonna jump all over the place and on top of people and spill food, just not at my house. And you're gonna, there's gonna be a celebration, and you're gonna shout, and, and there's something in the human soul that needs this type of expression. It is exuberant, and God says, then release it. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 says, all things should be done in order. So That does not mean that during worship, you create a scene with your shouting and a complete distraction that's disorderly, but you can shout in a way that is very orderly, and many times we actually see a unified shout to the Lord in Scripture. Dancing. No, if you dance, you will not go to hell. Dancing is celebrative. With the parable of the lost son, Jesus very clearly states when this lost son came back to him, he says in the very beginning that the angels celebrate when the lost sinner comes back to him. So when the lost son comes back to the father to demonstrate the celebration of the angels, even the angels celebrate when the sinner repents, he says that there is a feast and music and dancing. It is part of the human soul's expression of celebration, of excitement, and dancing, whatever form that might take. Again, not lewd type of dancing. We're not talking about slow dancing and a lot of stuff that can happen there. We're talking about a type of dancing that is truly an expression of God. I love you. You are awesome. And it's celebrative. Various gifts of the ministry. I need to go through this quicker. The focus there is ministry. Even in the midst of a worship service, we minister to one another by the gifts and the power of the Spirit. That is an overflow of worship. Ministry. Lifting of hands. A, a sign of surrender and adoration. And scripture asks us, let this be a way in which you communicate in my love language. Kneeling, again, we see this concept of humility. Praying, complete dependence upon this God that we worship and giving. This idea of sacrifice, David himself said When Arana the Jebusite wanted to give him that plot of land for the temple, he said, I will not take something that cost me nothing. There needs to be a sacrifice. This is a place of worship, and worship and sacrifice go hand in glove. That is the implication that David is trying to communicate. Giving is sacrifice. And so what we see here then is expressions of worship, give me one moment here as I try to find my place. What we see here then is these expressions of worship that God invites us before his presence to express our worship in these ways. And it might be easy for us to say, well, you know what, Pastor Mike, I just don't feel comfortable. This isn't what I grew up with. I could ask for a raise of hands. When you first came to Paraline. how many of you felt uncomfortable? You know, there would be... Oh, you're raising your hands anyway. Okay. I, I didn't want to embarrass you, but if you want to embarrass yourself, that's fine. Um, the truth is, when, when you came... It, it, we purposely have these things in our bulletin, so when you look at it, when you enter into worship, and you start thinking, "Man, these are really weird people." Where is the exit? That, that you start looking down, and you looking around. Yeah, I see that, and I see that, and I see this, and you know. let me consider this again. Um, maybe, maybe I've missed something here in worship. Again, ninety. I would venture to say, I'm guessing, but I'm venturing to say 90% of churches in America do not worship this way, they don't. I need to take this one step further, permit me this. This is more than a mere invitation, though it is that. These words come to us in the Hebrew in the form of commands. ground-level honest with you? What do you call it when God commands you to do something and you don't do it? Okay? God does not give us I think there's exactly 11. 11 suggest, you You know, if you feel like it, you can worship me this way. But you know what? If if you feel uncomfortable, I don't want to pull you out of your comfort zone. Come on. You can worship however you want. Here's the real deal. The church culture in America has dictated to us more than God's commands how we are to worship him. I would venture to say if you were to go to those 90% of the churches and you were to ask them, and and I grew up in one of them, yeah. More than one. And if you were to ask them, why don't you worship like this? I mean, look, just, just turn to Psalm 95, and then I'm seeing several expressions here. What we're we looking at five, six expressions of worship. And well, can I just ask, why don't you worship that way? I'm going to give you five reasons why they don't. Now, these are just reasons that I've come across with. The first one would be, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I get that. Many of you, when you first came to Paralympian, you're with me right now. You felt uncomfortable, but thank you. You're still here. The the, the truth is that God invites us to express our love in ways that we are just not used to. Does that mean then we just don't do it? Now, here's, I'm not saying that every time you come and you worship God. You have to go through this list. Okay, for this song, I'm going to sing. There's going to be musical instruments and I'll clap. For the next song, I'm going to bow and I'm going to shout and I'm going to dance. For the next song, I'm going to give gifts of the spirit. However, that's going to happen. I'm going to lift my hand and then I'm going to kneel. And you might throw a genuflect in there. And you're just, you know, is this like some religious exercise? Hallelujah. And we're shouting and then we're dancing and, 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 should we, is this what God is asking of us? I'm going to suggest to you no. Can I ask you this? There is the command, go and make disciples. How many of you make disciples, or at least are trying to make disciples? I am going to ask that you raise your hand on that one. Sorry. Okay. And, and, and if there's no avenue for you to do that, come 1030 Saturday mornings. We do evangelize. Our heart is to make disciples. We minister to people, pray for them, share Christ. But Does this mean go and make disciples? That means, you know what, every time you step out of that door, instead of saying hi to that passing neighbor that's driving by, You say, hang on, hang on one second. I need to share Christ with you. Put the brakes on. And you share Christ with them. And then when you get to work, you say, hey, to your boss. No, 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 no. Boss, I need to share with you the reason why I am even alive today. is because of Jesus. And you share your testimony with him. And then two seconds later, when you say, hey, to the receptionist, you feel obligated. i got to share Christ. And I am not suggesting that at every turn you have to try and make disciples. But making disciples should characterize our lives, church, should it not? And so I am suggesting to you that these ways in which we worship should characterize the way we worship. It's not that you have to do every single one of these. But when I was growing up, I saw none of these but singing and musical instruments. That was it. And it was completely unidimensional. God invites us, yes, commands us to worship in a way. And, and I hope as I went through those lists, worshiping in these ways isn't just because it's God's love language. It impacts us. I can remember when it just, I've, I've, there have been several of these occasions. This one just tends to stand out to me. We were in my home. There was a life group meeting. Someone was leading worship up I Can you remember maybe Meredith, someone leading worship? I'm standing in the back. And you know how my family room is is situated, where the TV, she's where the TV is, and and she's leading worship or whoever is. is. I'm standing in the back next to the bar. And if you've never been to my house, you may not understand what I mean by that. That's not a bar where we, anyway, I'm not going to pursue that. Uh, I am standing in the very back. And uh, behind me is the sink. There you go. And to my left is the front door. Now, I choose to stand in the back because some people are, getting there late. I guess that happens in the Christian community, and they're getting late, and I want to be able to welcome them into my home, and I am completely distracted. Some people come not just late, but really late, and so I'm welcoming them, hugging them, welcome, welcome, coming in. I'm keeping my voice down and loving on them, and I'm trying now to enter into worship, and the worship's almost over, okay? I just, I really feel disconnected, if I were to simply worship the way scripture tells me to, based on how I feel at the moment, I would probably not even be singing at the moment, truth be told. But here, God just spoke to me and he said, Mike, just, just lift your hands to me. And this is my testimony. So if it's my testimony, I can't be wrong, right? This is my experience. I'm lifting my hands, and as soon as I lift my hands, I, the, the Present. I'm, I'm sensing the presence of God. There is an immediate connection. And as I'm entering into worship, I am overwhelmed with his love. And as we're singing this song, that it means something to me. It's more than just words on an overhead projector cast against our wall that you can barely read, by the way. And it, it is something that the spirit of God is connecting in my spirit. And, and I enter into this worship and it's awesome. And I'm going to suggest to you that, that when we do this out of obedience to the Lord, there is a reason for it, and it helps us in expressing our worship so that we can, as the modern phrases, enter into worship, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, enter into his presence with praise. And so we, this is what we desire. God is, we are before the throne of God when we worship, are we not? He's tabernacled or seated upon the praises of his people We want to worship him in this way, and it does help us enter in, if you will. Where was I in all of this? Number two. I said I'd be quick on this, didn't I? Wow. Number two. The uh, reason I don't worship this way is because... I am not an extrovert. How many of you are introverts like me? Raise your hand, thank you. There's more than just a few. I'm an introvert, I am. I I can come out of my shell. I I I thought it was humorous when God called me to be a pastor. Great, are you kidding me? I am not an extrovert. Uh, I've even had people say, you're a pastor and you're an introvert? Yeah, I feel so comfortable. Bill Bright, before he went on to glory, confessed, by the way, guys, I know I'm an evangelist, but I'm an introvert. I was like, yes! fellow brother in the Lord. (laughs) He was an introvert, and yet us introverts are invited, yes, commanded to worship God in this way as well. It's just that because of our introversion, we are more susceptible to what other people might think about me. And we can be easily our, our comfort zone is like so narrow. You extroverts like my wife, your comfort zone almost has no limits, okay? I, I admire that. But I have I have limits. I can touch them with both hands at the same time, okay? It's really small. And I can be easily pulled out of that comfort zone. And worship, at least in the beginning, did that for me on a regular basis. Eventually I got used to it. But I'm sorry. I, I don't find that, you know, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud, unless you're an introvert to the rock of our city. I, I don't find that in scripture. Number three, I don't, I don't want to make unbelievers feel uncomfortable. Churches base their worship on this church. They do. If it's going to make the unbeliever feel uncomfortable, by no means do it. We want the sinner to feel comfortable in their sin. No, I didn't mean to word it that way. Um, We want them to just feel comfortable being here. And so many churches follow up with, I am not going to preach the gospel in a way that's going to offend them. And my question is, wow, are we really going to take it this far? Because then what gospel are you going to preach? The gospel offends. Worship that the church is called to. That's why we're here it will offend by its very nature because God's presence is here, or at least it should be. Maybe in some churches it's not, but the truth is this is where God should be inhabiting and dwelling. And the presence of God will indeed offend the unbeliever. I'm sorry, that is not a reason, that is an excuse. So how do these, the, the, these challenges in Psalm 95, they come to us as commands, not just, not just suggestions. And so some people, they want to get a little bit more biblical, and I admire that because that's what I want to hear. Why don't you worship this way? And some of them would say, because Christ fulfilled temple worship. The, you know, that's Old Testament. It's not New Testament. And apparently, they haven't yet read in their Bibles the book of Revelation, I suppose. I'm sorry if I'm being too sarcastic for, with this this morning, but it th- th- is true. It is not just the Old Testament. It is the New Testament as well. Some would say, you know what? Well, if we're going to sing and shout and clap and so on, then the Bible also says to play the harp, to strike the high-sounding cymbal, to play the lyre. That's L-Y-R-E, by the way. And we don't use these. So if those obviously are cultural instruments, these two are cultural expressions of worship. And so here is what I would like, like to say on that. Because if these are simply Jewish cultural expressions of worship, turn with me right now to Revelation chapter 19. then I am going to, and I'm going to say this up front, I'm going to suggest to you, if this is simply Jewish culture, then that means, I guess, heaven caught on. Heaven looked down at the Jews as they were worshiping and said, you know what, God, I kind of like that. Can we do that? And so apparently the Jewish worship was so awesome, heaven decided, the angels got together and they had this, this, discussion and came before the Lord with a petition, we would like to worship you just like your people down there do. And my question is, does the culture of earth ever dictate to heaven what they should do? Do you not think it is the other way around? So whatever we find here in Revelation, I guess I should turn to it too, whatever we find in Revelation, that is the precedent. And if Israel happened to worship these 11 ways here, and there's probably more, then I would suggest to you it is only because as the angels and God's created beings have been worshiping God from the moment they were created well before the Jewish nation came on the earth all the way into eternity, they have always worshiped this way. This way. Not the American church way, which is unidimensional, but this way, in Revelation chapter 19, we see there in verse 1, it says, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now I realize that that word is means, literally means speaking loudly. I think shouting is fair, a translation, but it is like a roar of a great multitude, hallelujah, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And there is this unified declaration, and it is not a silent whisper. It is a loud voice, unified, saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And skipping down in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. And my question is, in how many of these churches in America, these 90%, have you ever seen anyone fall down? Not in my church. They would have us send a deacon to escort you out. Sorry, we don't worship that way in this church. If you were to have lifted their hands, every eye would look to you and say, Oh, my goodness, are you charismatic? And, of course, you would say, Yeah, yeah, I am, but... uh, Is that going to be okay? and, and, And we see this type of worship in heaven. This is not Jewish worship. This is heavenly worship speaking the love language of God. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. And then in verse six, I'm not done. Then I heard, it's the same chapter. This is like this incredible worship service going on here. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. Pause. How many of you, when you have ever heard a loud clap of thunder, ran into your bedroom and climbed under your blankets or under your bed? How many of you ever Okay, some of you are willing to admit that. The rest of you, we'll talk later. It it can be terrifying. Some of you, maybe you don't, you probably repressed it as a kid, okay? We'll talk about that in counseling. The truth is, loud peals of thunder are frightening, and that is the setting here. It is dynamic. It is explosive. It is powerful, church. And it's not because some C4 or an atomic bomb went off, these are the voices of heaven declaring the praises of God. They are speaking in the love language of God. We could turn to chapter four, if I only had time. (laughs) Um, Maybe, there's, there's actually more that I wanted to get into. And we are going to need to do this. Um, Wow. The 24 elders. I'll conclude with this. Go go to chapter 4. Next week we're going to look at David and how that plays a part in really what we're getting at. This idea of comfortableness. That is, I believe, the main hurdle most people will not tell you I don't worship this way and give you a theological reason they will tell you because I don't feel comfortable with it well kudos to them because at least they don't know the wrong answer. <laughs> I'm being a little bold here. The wrong answer. The answer that, you know, this is somehow cultural, that somehow, well, I mean, if the if the musical instruments are cultural, then all of these ways are cultural, and we're missing it. Okay, chapter 4, verse 10. The host of heaven, and, and this is part of the reason, oh, Lord, help me, don't make me give another uh-oh. This is why when I was just meditating on these two chapters, I began to weep. There is just something about worship that strikes to the core of who we are as as creatures made in his image, made in God's image. The 24 elders fall down. Now it's not fell, but fall. This is a progressive scenery, if you will, played out in the drama of heaven of worship. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay, this word, Greek word balo, doesn't just mean lay, it means cast. It's as if they are placing them or tossing them out of arm's length, arm's reach. And as they cast their crowns before the throne, they say, you. Worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and power and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Chapter five, verse eight, and when they had taken when they had taken it, the, the scroll, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, and this song just undoes me. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And by your blood, the currency of heaven for redemption and purchase, by or with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And in verse 13, it's as if this resounding, Chorus echoes throughout all of God's creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth and throughout the seas, this unified declaration, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen. And the elders, they do it again fell down and worshiped. When they cast their crowns, these crowns, the Greek word Stephanos, is not the crown that sits on the head of the king. It is the victory crown, which is a a Greek Olympic player would enter the games and he would win. He would be given that laurel wreath, a Stephanos. These crowns are symbols of victory, and we see here in chapter 4, verse 10, as they cast those crowns, and the suggestion is out of arm's reach, they are saying to him who sits on the throne, he is the one who has gained every one of my victories. It is because of you. It has nothing to do with me. I simply was willing to sit in the seat and allow you to take control. And there is this sense of surrender, of humility, and of declaration of truth. Church, can you stand with me? Band, can you take the stage? As we worship, we worship in spirit, my emphasis today, in truth. We are speaking God's love language. We cast aside the ideas of perhaps what others may be thinking of us. Worship has no place for fear or longing for comfort. It is a sacrifice from the praise of our lips. It is a heart in total surrender to our creator, our shepherd, our great king. And church, let's worship.